0: On September the 21st, 1990, Joel and Ethan Coen's gangster picture Miller's Crossing opened the 28th New York Film Festival. Six years earlier, the pair's very first film, Blood Simple, had been invited to screen at the festival. Yet, despite being afforded a prestigious opening night slot, the siblings had cause for concern. For Blood Simple, they had spent over a year scraping together a meagre budget to make a film that had no distribution. But being selected for New York, gave their neo-noir a platform that translated into nearly $4 million at the box office. I got a job for you. Oh, well, if pay's right and it's legal, I'll do it. It's not strictly legal. Well, pay's right, I'll do it. That success secured them a deal with 20th Century Fox, but there lingered a notion that they just might have enjoyed beginner's luck. Understandably, the budget for the next picture, Raising Arizona, this time a crime comedy, was limited to $6 million. But when it pulled in $29 million, the reading was that the pair were no flash in the pan. My name is H.R. McDonough. Call me hi. But Miller's Crossing was something far more ambitious, and with a period setting, it was something far more expensive. You mightn't like it, but giving up Bernie Bambam Bam is a pretty small price to pay for peace. Business is business, and a war is gonna hurt everybody. Bernie plays with fire, he's gotta deal with the consequences, even if that means he gets bumped off. But there was more than just a budget of $14 million riding on the whole thing. There was the sibling's growing reputation. Anyone can be lucky enough to strike gold with their first feature film. To repeat the trick? Well, that could be just a coincidence. To do it a third time? That requires real talent. In an unspecified city in what appears to be the 1920s, Irish and Italian gangs are vying for control of the bootlegging rackets. Leo O'Bannon, played by Albert Finney, leads the Irish, while Johnny Casper, played by the late great Joe Polito, heads the Italians. Leo appears the stronger of the two, while Casper is clearly the more volatile. Casper has a grievance with one of Leo's underlings, Bernie Birnbaum, played brilliantly by John Tuturo. Casper thinks Bernie is fixing fights, but Leo says it's no matter for concern, and it is only Leo's trusted lieutenant, Tom Regan, played in a carefully nuanced performance by Gabriel Byrne, who concede that not yielding on Bernie is making Leo vulnerable. Tom advises Leo to offer Bernie to Casper as an olive branch, with Leo ignoring the advice and recognizing that Leo is facing defeat. Tom knows that the only way to save his boss is to turn against him and pretend to side with Casper. Now add into that murky mix the fact that Tom is sleeping with Leo's girlfriend Verna, played by Marcia Gay Harden in one of her finest performances and you have a fuse ready to go off. So the film is layered with betrayals, deceptions, double dealings, crisscrosses, compromises false allegiance and, most memorable of all, a faked assassination. <laughs> I'm praying to you! Look at your heart! I'm breaking. you! Intriguing, no doubt, but it surely left studio executives wondering, would the audience be able to follow it and know who the good guy is? I mean, Tom is the good guy, right? He's not plotting to seize Leo's crown. What are you chewing over? dream I had once. I was walking in the woods, I don't know why. Wind came moving, blew me head off. Compounding that measure was the fact that in September 1990, no less than three more gangster pictures were opening in theatres. One week before the Coens premiered in New York, Orion Pictures had released State of Grace. Although Phil Jouinou's direction had impressed very few, critics favoured the performances from the high-profile cast of Sean Penn, Gary Ullman and Ed Harris, and the studio hoped it would play well in the early autumn season and perhaps garner awards chatter. Frankie's running the show now. Frank is the boss? My big brother is the boss. Frank's the boss? Yeah. He's trying to put this deal together with the Italians. This, uh, this guy, Borelli. Joe Borelli? You heard of him? <laughs> we, we, we're like that. Also screening at the New York Festival was Abel Ferrara's King of New York, starring Christopher Walken, Lawrence Fishburne and Wesley Snipes. As was often the case with Ferrara, there is no shying away from the brutally sorted underworld of drug dealers and gangland killings. From here on, nothing goes down unless I'm involved. No blackjack, no dope deals, no nothing. A nickel bag gets sold in the park. I want in. You guys got fat while everybody starved on the street. It's my turn. Hmm. You think you're going to live long enough to spend that money, you fucking hump? And then, sandwiched between those three films, on September the 19th, came this picture. As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Miller's Crossing didn't click with the critics. Vincent Canby called it weightless and wondered what the point was, while Roger Ebert felt that everything was too designed that it looked like a commercial intended to look like a gangster movie. By comparison, those same critics lionised Scorsese's picture for its brutally honest examination of life within the Mafia. The operative word there being life. Scorsese's film was about the real world, while it appeared, at least at first, that the Coens had made a gangster movie about gangster movies. Which would explain why Miller's Crossing opens in a darkened room with a crime lord being petitioned with a request. You know I'm a sporting man. I like to lay the occasional (laughs) bet, but I ain't that sporting. When I fix a fight, say I uh, pay a 3-to-1 favourite to throw a goddamn fight, I figure I got the right to expect that fight to go off at 3-to-1. Here is Joe Polito being interviewed by film historian Alan K. Rode in 2015 recalling the Coen brothers' original intention for the scene. They were initially going to duplicate the opening of The Godfather. I believe in America. They were going to do it in one long shot. America has made my fortune. With the reveal. And I raised Madora in the American fashion. Mm-hmm. And we shot that for, I think, a day, and in fact, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Elsewhere, you have allusions to Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, where a phone rings and rings and rings and rings just like the one in Tom's apartment. Yeah. Then, more subtly, a sound motif that can be sourced to Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist, where, near the end, assassins go about their dirty business in a forest, and what you hear is the creaking of the tall pines. In addition, there is Robert Seatmaq's adaptation of Ernest Hemingway's short story The Killers, in which the Swede, played by Burt Lancaster, is gunned down by two hitmen. Why do they want to kill you? I did something wrong, once. Thanks for coming. Miller's Crossing doesn't have a character called Swede, but it does have the Dane, played by J.E. Freeman. You think you're so goddamn smart, you join up Johnny Casper, you bump Bernie burnbound. Up is down, black is white. Only Freeman was not the Cohen's first choice. They originally wanted Swedish actor Peter Stramari. Such in jokes peppered the script with further references to other noir pictures, such as Howard Hawks's adaptation of Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep. Hello, what do you want, please? I don't want a thing. What? You me. I called you. Right. Say, who is this? Sergeant Riley. Well, there isn't any Sergeant Riley here. Right. Oh, wait a minute, you better talk to my mother. Hello, officer, I'd like to report an intruder at 346 West Lewis. Who's this? Hello, Shad. Tom Reagan here. No, we won't be needing any today. Yeah, my mother, she didn't recognize me. But the biggest, most obvious reference point is the 1942 adaptation of Dashiell Hammett's The Glass Key, directed by Stuart Heisler and starring Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. In that story, a crooked politician Paul Madvig, decides to endorse reform candidate Ralph Henry, all because Madvig has fallen for Henry's daughter Janet. Madvig's enforcer, Ed Bowman thinks Madvig is walking himself into a trap because Bowman doubts Janet's feelings for his boss. In other words, the plot to Miller's Crossing is an almost direct lift from Hammett's celebrated 1931 novella. You really going through with that crazy idea? What crazy idea? Backing old man Henry in the reform ticket? That's right. It's wrong. Think he'll play ball after election? I know he will. <laughs> Why, he's practically giving me the key to his house. Yeah, glass key. Hmm? But no matter, because the glass key itself was a reconfiguration of another earlier Hammett plot, Red Harvest, which he had published in serial form in the Black Mask pulp magazine across the winter of 1927 and spring of 1928. So potent is Hammett's plot that Akira Kurosawa transposed it to 1860 Japan for his 1961 samurai classic, Yojimbo. (laughs) But before all those interwining threads are unravelled, the film begins with a shot of Tom's fedora lying on the floor of a forest. And as the credits begin, a gust of wind lifts it up and it flies away into the distance. And that image echoes the end of Jean-Pierre Melville's 1962 policier, Le Doulos There are many more such quotations in Miller's Crossing, but listing them all will not get us any closer to what the film is about or why it works. So here's the thing. Back in 1990, the Coens were derided for their references to, and quotations from, other films. But I think that if they had not made it then, rather if they were to make it today, scene for scene, line for line, shot for shot, and to the magic of some space-time wormhole, with the same cast and performances, the critics will be cooing over those very same elements they had complained about. Why? Because with the reputation the Coens have now earned, critics and audiences alike have, over their subsequent 14 films, come to appreciate the tropes and techniques that run through their work. If Miller's Crossing were made today, it would be lauded as both an homage to the 30s gangster pictures, 40s noirs, as well as a morality play. While their films are always of the highest technical order, their tropes and themes have only developed over time. And it appears to me that one of their preoccupations is the search for moral order in a chaotic universe. And that, for me, is what Miller's Crossing is all about. But that's not just my opinion. It's right there in the opening speech. So, back go to these questions. Friendship. Character. Ethics. So, while Leo dismisses Casper out of hand, it is Tom who listens carefully and bestows his advice. In a way... You could say Tom not only serves as Leo's eyes and ears, he is also his conscience. And in that respect, Tom's loyalty is not exclusively to Leo, but to what he thinks is right. Which is why he abandons Leo, and at great risk to himself, sides with Casper. Also, so that Leo can see the error of his ways. Time and again throughout the story, Tom is offered help, yet he rigorously rejects it, indicating that he wants to be beholden to no one only to what is right. And that makes Tom a terrific quandary. He is a killer with a code, a man of violence who has a conscience. Reserved and principled, he will take a beating if he reckons he deserves it, and he won't bear a grudge against his assailant. But Tom finds that the deeper and the murkier the plot gets, the more difficult it is for him to stick to his moral compass. To misquote Rudyard Kipling, if you can remain moral while all about you are behaving like animals. Which might explain the significance of the fedora that we see under the opening credits. It belongs to Tom, and it is that single item of clothing he seems to cherish more than anything else in his life. He is a man of sparse means. Yes, he dresses well, and lives in a large apartment. But both lack the luxury you'd expect a gangster to enjoy. The Cohens are coy in announcing where and when the film was set. I'll address the significance of its location in a moment, but for now, let's focus not on the where, but the when. Prohibition is in effect, so were some time between 1920 and 1933. But, while there are speakeasies and gin joints, the Jazz Age seems to have lost its sheen. But the clue that really helps us is the soundtrack, specifically, Good night, Sweetheart, which was written in 1931 by Ray Noble, Jimmy Campbell, and Red Connolly. Good night, sweetheart. All my prayers are for you. Good night, sweetheart. So Miller's Crossing takes place sometime between 1931 and 33. The very years of Mervyn Leroy's Little Caesar, William Wellman's The Public Enemy and Howard Hawks' Scarface. In those films, you will see men sporting all manner of lavish accessories. Tie pins, cufflinks, spats and jewellery. Utterly disinterested in such trinkets, Tom doesn't have any emotional attachments either. You all over, Tom. and no heart. And perhaps paradoxically, that explains the significance of his hat. And that brings us back to where the film is set. The Coens rigorously refused to identify where, but it doesn't feel like a teeming metropolis like New York or Chicago. It's likely a large town, but nothing more. But the name of the town is unimportant. It's what is outside the town, in the backwoods, that is. And that brings us back to the Hat. When we first see it, it is blowing about in the wind in the woods of Miller's Crossing. And to lose your hat out there, well, it can cost you your life. Then again, sparing someone their life out in Miller's Crossing can cost you yours. So the hat isn't an item of clothing, it's a conscience, which means Miller's Crossing isn't so much a place as it is a state of mind.